0: My producer, Craig, well, he's a kind and thoughtful man. How do I know this? Well, it's a disorienting time for me right now. This afternoon, I'm telling my colleagues at the RSA that after 15 years in the summer, I'm hanging up my conceptual frameworks on my two-by-two matrix typologies and standing down as RSA CEO. 10 days ago, I was 60. Who knows what the future holds, and that's without Brexit, third-tier lockdown, and a new strain of Covid to contend with. So, good old Craig, knowing that I'm in a bit of a tizzy, has chosen today for me to have a Christmas stocking of an interview, the prospect of which fills me with warmth and excitement.
1: You're listening to the podcast that puts leading thinkers on the spot by asking for one big idea to help shape our new era. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the
0: RSA. And so why am I looking forward to today's programme so much? Because I've got on Matt Ford, comedian, podcast host, radio presenter, now author, of an excellent book that I've been reading all week, fantastic book, Politically Homeless. How are you, Matt? I'm very good. Thank you very much for having me on. Now, we need to deal with this first, Matt. We have to deal with this first. It's the elephant in the room. I want to point out to you that on your wonderful podcast, The Political Party, you have had a think tank director, and I am a think tank director. You have had a former number 10 insider, and I I'm a former number 10 insider. You are one of the few continuing Blair fans, and I am one of the few continuing Blair fans. You support a crap Midlands football team. <laughs> I support a crap Midlands football You know what's coming, Matt. <laughs> Why haven't we got married? My name must have come up on a list at some point, and someone must have gone, oh, no, well, no, he's a
1: bit passe, or no one's ever heard of him, or... I don't know. Absolutely not. Do you know what? I basically booked the podcast myself. So it's all quite ad hoc. And it's often just who I've thought of that week. Or if I'm in the middle of something, oddly, this year has been really busy. So sometimes it's just people that occur to me or people I follow on Twitter. You, of course, are someone that I would love to have on. And, you know, having worked at number 10, the IPPR, been a fantastic commentator in the public realm, I would love to have on. So I'll say this is a yes. So you've redeemed yourself because you've made a couple of references to my past there, which if you hadn't
0: done that, then I think there might have been a frauder. Because, you know, after all, I worked with John McTurnan, you know, <laughs> Torsten Bell, you know, he was he was part of the Ed Millerband setup. And I know what you think of the Ed Millerband setup. Anyway. <laughs> No, in 2021, I'm coming on your podcast, mate, and if you don't invite me, I'm just going to burst in through the doors of the studio
1: and walk onto the stage. I would love... Of course... I mean, this is one of the things is, of course I would love to have you on. You'd be one of the best guests that I would have had on it. It's just... It's restricted by... As I say, the fact that it's just me, there's not a team who works on the show. You know, people don't. That's why I ask listeners for suggestions because yeah. I realise. Look, Matt, enough of the excuses. It, every, <laughs> every, every
0: excuse is slightly more humiliating for me. All right, so let's just okay. let, let's just say. It, okay, well as long as as it's a strange swat, quirk, it's a strange quirk, and we're going to remedy it. <laughs> we are
1: going to remedy it. Yeah. As long as is there a way for me to join the RSA?
0: Yeah, I'll do it. Consider it done. Great. Now the other thing. I say the other reason it rankles me is that <laughs> one of the only things I'm known for is my sense of humour. So, (laughs) you know, and I did think it was maybe because I would outshine you, but my wonderful wife did a kind of film for me for my 60th birthday and she got, you know, some, Tony Blair was on it and Peter Mandelson was on it and David Miliband was on it. And, you know, they all say, oh, good old Matthew, you know, he's really good. And I expect them to say, you know, his ideas about social change are really powerful and he's been an incredibly important figure on there. But they do tend to say his jokes are fantastic. We love your sense of humour. In fact, actually, one of the most painful things, I went to the, IPPR 20th birthday party. And I actually was the most successful IPPR director up to that point. And Patricia Hewitt did a speech and she went to all the directors of IPPR and I was sitting there waiting for her to say, and of course our most successful director is Matthew Taylor. And he got to me and she said, and Matthew Taylor, oh, we love your sense of
1: humour. And then moved on. Yeah, but that's a compliment. You have to understand in my world, that's the best compliment you can get. Well, I know, but you're a bloody comedian. Of <laughs> uh, course yes, it's. It's high <laughs> praise. It's high <laughs> praise. A <laughs> sense of humour is one of the most valued assets any individual can have in our society see it as the best compliment
0: no well i kind of do look peter when <laughs> he recorded this little thing for me for my birthday i used to write jokes for peter do you write jokes on politician speeches it's a pretty thankless task to be honest their timing isn't great a lot of the time
1: you know what? it's something i've never done really yeah
0: yeah no i used to do it and i remember i wrote for jack straw do you remember michael howard when he was home secretary he went through a little run of getting done by the courts he broke the law and various things, you know, he got into trouble for, for... I was
1: increasing the sentences of the Bulger
0: Killers. Yeah, that's right. That was one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there were about three or four things like this. So, <laughs> Jack Straw said to me at a party conference, could, you know, could you do me something funny? I said, all oh, right, I'll do this. And what it said in the speech was, he was going to say to the conference, so I want to talk to you about repeat offenders and the problem of repeat offenders. And I want to talk to you particularly about a very serious repeat offender. You know, he's been up in court four times. He's never apologised. He carries on. This offender, who I shall call only Michael, and then he would go on. right? So Jack did it, and he got to that point, and clearly it, he didn't have the confidence. So he said, this offender, who I will call only Michael, Michael Howard, the Home Secretary. Oh, dear, dear, dear. <laughs> he just obviously lost confidence that, that anybody in the room would understand. <laughs> I mean, there was nobody in the room who didn't understand. People were already laughing, but he still did. Anyway, so Peter <laughs> used to get me dry jokes for him. And one time he asked me, and I was I couldn't be bothered with it. And he was Secretary of State at DTI then, so doing a speech for Western Helicopters. And I couldn't... i was just so sick of it. And I sent back the speech to him with a joke in it and said, you know, I think this, this will go down really well. And he was... I think he was in a hurry, so he didn't start reading the speech that was given to him in the car by his advisor. By the way, listeners, you have to excuse this joke. I know it's not kind of really very 2020, but this was a long time ago, and Peter was not at this stage out about his sexuality. So the first line of his speech to Western Helicopters was... It's a great joy for me to be here at Western Helicopters because, as you know, there's nothing I enjoy more than a ride on a big chopper.
1: Oh, my <laughs> God. Did he say it?
0: No, he didn't say, he didn't say it. He <laughs> claims that he said it. But, but it gets worse, though, Matt. So a few days later, we're at Checkers, and I did a presentation at Checkers to the Cabinet. And, you know, it's, it was quite a big thing being at Checkers doing a presentation to the Cabinet. And there's a coffee break. Peter comes up to me. And he says, oh, you must tell Tony that wonderful joke you wrote for me. And I said, no, Peter, he won't think it's funny. And Peter said, no, you must, you must, you must. So there's the Prime Minister sitting there reading some notes, you know, probably about matters of great global import. And I had to stand in front of him like a sort of small child performing in front of the in-laws. And I had to repeat the joke in front of Tony. And oh, my God. He, he raised one eyebrow. <laughs> Because you know, you know, comedy is all about timing, and it's all about being in the right place at the right time. Some of your material, I suspect, wouldn't work completely taken out of context, being presented to one of the world's leading statespeople.
1: No, I think most of it wouldn't. I think, uh,
0: my word, I do not envy you that. Anyway, so I think we've established the fact that I'm going to be on the political party pretty early in 2021. Now, yes, God, crikey, of course. Enough of me. Well, certainly for the time being. How's it been for you, not being on stage?
1: Oh, a bit weird. You know, you do miss it. You feel unfit, which is odd because i have it's probably the healthiest I've been. I've lost a lot of weight during lockdown, but I kind of feel kind of itching to get back on almost in a physical sense. I can almost feel it nagging away at me on my back. It's just so strange to have not done it for so long, you know, and it's almost people talk about these things as like a drug, but you do get a natural high off it. Obviously, you get a, a shot of adrenaline every night. The focus that you have when you're on stage is incredible, you know, that your body gives you. So not having had that for almost a year, you know, you do just feel a little less sharp, a little off the pace. I've done things that maybe come close to replicating it, but there's nothing the same as being on stage for an hour and a half, two hours a night, entertaining audiences up and down the country. There's no real sort of methadone replacement for it. So you just end up feeling a bit flat.
0: It does sap you, doesn't it? I mean, you, like me, like every human being, suffers unthinkable depths of personal insecurity and self-doubt. And the thing that helps us, because I mean, I do a lot of speaking that isn't comedy. I mean, I'm doing three speeches this week. I'm doing a speech to a housing association in an hour's time. But I do speak reasonably well. For a public speaker on issues like social change and public policy, you know, I will tell a couple of gags, and I get a good affirmation from it. And actually... It provides a kind of inoculation against those feelings of self-doubt, irrelevance, pointlessness. And when you don't have it, it doesn't hit you straight away, I don't think. But over time, it's as if you're not having any vitamin C or something. You can feel...
1: Yes, that's exactly what it's like. You've articulated it far better than I did. That's exactly what it feels like. It's like It would almost be like giving up coffee for a bit. You're not getting that kind of hit that you get every day. And for me, it's not so much... I've never thought of it in an affirmation way, really, which makes me sound a bit dozy for a comedian to not have realised that dynamic. But, I mean, it makes you feel good. You know, from a purely selfish perspective, going out and making people laugh, obviously, is (laughs) is quite a nice feeling. And it's a rush, more than anything. I don't think I get any... I don't think I get massive ego massage from it. For me, it's more, I really enjoy the sound of laughter, obviously, and that's just like, that gives you a natural high. It's more, oh, I thought this was funny six months ago. It's it's more that, it's not having your homework marked for me. It's more that people are going, oh, yes, you got that right. So, you know, I sit here in my spare room, I write gags, I try them out, and then they eventually become a show that I then, that gets trialled and trialled in small venues. It goes to the Edinburgh Festival where it really comes to life, and then I take it on tour. So it's almost, even when I've performed the show for often like the hundredth time, it's still nice to go, oh, yes, I was right, that is funny. Yes, that was a good idea that I had that afternoon. It's more, I suppose it's more, it weirdly sort of transactional in that way, which sounds quite joyless, but it's, it's, it's that.
0: I completely agree. The thing is, you see, I mean, although I do think that not doing speeches in front of people, of course, one of the worst things, you do speeches and you do jokes on Zoom, you can't hear people laugh, you know? So you've no idea whether or not it went down. You have no know, idea whether people liked it. But I think, it does put more pressure on your loved ones because you find yourself, they have to fill the gap that the audience has left by giving you affirmation. So I think it's been a bit of a strange <laughs> people around me. I, thought, I ended up, I did a kind of weekly quiz night for my extended family. And it became increasingly clear as the quiz night wound on that, that I was only doing this for myself, for my own affirmation. And people, you could see people thinking, oh my God, it's a bloody quiz again, you know? And of course, I'm pretending that I'm selflessly writing all these questions, but this is my one bit of the week but you're right. The thing about the audience, which is different from your loved ones and your friends, is that if they like it, they like it because it's good. Whereas you always slightly think your friends and loved ones are laughing at your jokes because they're being nice to you or because they want something in return.
1: Yes, or indeed not laughing at your jokes because they have <laughs> the more complicated <laughs> dynamics at work. You know, for some people, the family will be the hardest audience. But that's fat. I mean, you—you, you <laughs> I'm not a psychologist, but you do sound like a frustrated performer. It feels like. You know, had you had a few years doing acting or something, it might have scratched an itch.
0: There's no question. But, you know, I want the best of all worlds. I think that's one of the things about your book. that You know, it's like you you want to be a bit of all these different worlds. You don't want to tie yourself down to any of them. Oh, by the way, before I forget, in that film my wife did, the biggest thrill was not, I have to say, Tony Blair, David Miliband, Peter Mandelson, even Frank Skinner, Adrian Charles, because we support the same shit football team. It was that my mate Simo, who used to be the press officer at the Albion, yeah. he got a message to me from Chris Brunt. Oh, wow. I know. Oh, that is far more exciting. Well, it, now, now, let's explain to the listeners. The listeners are thinking, hang hey, on, he just made all those famous politicians and famous people, and now he's mentioned something I've never, ever heard of, and I will I share with you listeners that Chris Brunt played hundreds of times for West Bromwich Albion and Northern Ireland and now plays for Bristol City. Why is it? That I was more, I, know, I never met him, but Simo got him to do a little message going, you know, never too late to play for the Albion you know, or something like that. I was kind of, oh, there were tears on my eyes. Why is it, Matt, that people like you and me are in the end more thrilled by being acknowledged by someone who's played for our rubbish football team than by a world leader?
1: Because even footballers at West Brom and Nottingham Forest level are gods. And there is something about the arena that makes it special they carry your hopes and dreams and more than that, your identity. Part of who you are is the football club you support. For me, Nottingham Forest is where I'm from. It's the only team I was ever going to support. So when people have played for Forest, it merges all the things that you like about other things. So in a way, they are your representative. So there is an element of the politician about them in a weird way, not in the way that they behave, but they're effectively your representative on the pitch. There is an element of the superhuman. These people are fantastic athletes. There's also the element of the entertainer. You know, if you think about some of the most exciting things you've ever seen in your life as a football fan. They will be last-minute goals or cup finals or, get, for teams like ours, staying up or not getting relegated or, or getting promoted. They occupy such a unique space. That all these things all wrapped in one. And, of course, if you're a football fan and anyone asks you the one thing you could be in life, I think most people, regardless of all their other interests, would choose to be a footballer. So it's all that, I think. It is all that. I'd love to stay on football. Actually, I'm going to stay
0: on football just for a second. Your book is like, I don't know when things can only get better. When was that published? It must have been around 98, 99, I guess, just because it would have been after that election and... So you return to the same territory as that book 20 years later. You kind of update it. You do a kind of it's. – I'm not saying it's the same in any way at all, but it's it's similar kind of territory. It's got the same feel to it. It's something that makes politics really accessible. Do you think it's time also now you, – should your next book be fever pitch 20 or 25 <laughs> years on? Do you think it's time to return to the kind of idiosyncrasies, sadnesses, poignancy of being a
1: football fan? Well, in a way, I think the book is kind of fever pitch for politics, but then I guess things can only get better as fever pitch for politics. I don't know how – I think fever pitch is – and obviously things can only get better is a superb book as well, but I think fever pitch is so uniquely great that all I would be doing would be doing a kind of forest version of that. And, of course, it would be different because I've had a different experience to a Nick Hornby. But I think the parallel with things can only get better is I had – a kind of unique experience in politics and having worked to the party and stuff like that, albeit for a brief period, and then ended up doing a podcast about it, it felt like more, I suppose, in a weird way, my experience of politics felt more unique than my experience of football, if you see what I mean, even though obviously, that's a ludicrous thing to say. And the book's full of that kind of
0: gritty frontline experience that you had in Nottingham and and in Stoke. And, you know, if you're not a political activist, the book really Brings it alive. I mean, I think the thing about Fever Pitch for me is I can't remember, I can't quote it exactly, but remember, there's a chapter. I love. There's a chapter that opens up, and he he goes back to Highbury, and there's a new striker, and whoever the new striker is is fantastic. And he thought he'd fallen out of love with Arsenal, and there's this line where he says something like, "I suddenly realised that my disenchantment with Arsenal was less to do." with women, drugs, and rock and roll, and more to do with the ineptitude of the McDonald-Stapleton
1: strike force. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it tests you, your loyalty football, in a way that very few other things will. Yeah, yeah. Look, Listen, Matt, I'll be clear. If I could go back and not be
0: a football fan... I would go back and change that little bit of my DNA. It's brought me more misery than happiness, but that's another subject. (laughs) So let me ask a really obvious question. I guess you get asked all the time, so you'll have a brilliant pat answer to it. But what, in the end, is fundamentally the difference between political communication and comedic communication, between your performance as a stand-up comedian and the performance of a politician giving a speech? Oh God,
1: no one's ever asked me that before. So I don't have a pat answer for that. I mean, it's a different dynamic because the audience wants different things. I think it is important for politicians to show they have a sense of humour because most people do. And I think it's important for a politician's sense of humour to be a reflection of their natural sense of humour and not just kind of <laughs> deliver jokes they wouldn't ordinarily be comfortable with in a form of words that doesn't sound like theirs. But of course, that's true for the rest of the speech as well. Whereas with comedy... People want it to be as funny as possible the entire time, whereas that would be kind of inappropriate for a politician. Although, you know, you do have those comic relief characters. Boris, for a long time at the Tory conference, was their jester. Prescott kind of at Labour's for a bit. Mandelson, actually, was the entertainer for a few years. So I think it's just that the audience want different things and, of course, you're trying to achieve a different aim. The similarities are that I think a good comedy show does have a sense of flow, that it's not just an unconnected series of jokes or one-liners or routines, that there's something that binds it all together and that it comes to a neat end. That doesn't mean you need some grand narrative but it does mean that you need to think about what order you place these routines in and what is the thing that connects them all. And I think from an audience's point of view, a bit of structure, and I've really only understood this in the last few years, I'm very late to this, I've been a really slow learner in terms of kind of packaging a show neatly, is that a bit of structure really lifts a show. And just thinking about where bits go is fundamental in the end to the way that the audience will experience the show. And as my agent always says think about the ending, you know, think about the, the ending is so important. And I think it's that's also true of a political speech is what note are you leaving on? Because that that is the bit that people will take away more than anything is the ending. And one of the things about performing, Matt, is having the confidence to
0: respond to the room. Because actually, you know, most performers have got one way of performing. So if you think about Blair and Brown, for example, Tony, his background was a being a lawyer. And so, what Tony was best at was convincing the skeptical audience. He was brilliant at bringing people around. Do you remember that the speech he made at his final annual conference, which you referred to in the book? You know, he's got a party that still feels a bit ambivalent about him. And he makes a speech with a bit of self deprecation, the wonderful joke about Cherie not getting off the boat next door, which Phil Collins wrote. All of that, he gets it right. Whereas Gordon, you know, he comes from the background of a preacher. He wants to be in a room of fellow believers. You know, he wants people on the chairs shouting hallelujah. But when I do speeches, what I always try to do, and I don't do it all the time because I'm in a hurry or because I'm worried or whatever, is I try to just slightly shift it depending on who's in the room. You know, are they warm? If they're warm, I can tell a few more jokes. I can go off script a bit more. Are they not? as a performer, to what extent, are you able to chime into the room? And to what extent do you adapt
1: to what feel is coming back to you? That's a really good question. I think two things are true. One is, quite a few years ago, I gave up trying to second guess an audience. That said, what I would say is, Edinburgh is a really interesting study, because at the Edinburgh Festival for a month, you play the same room at the same time every day. And you also play every day of the week, so you can compare Saturdays and you can compare Sundays. It's as close to laboratory conditions as you can get in comedy. And yet, some days the audiences are quieter than others, even when the house is full. So one thing that I've really noticed is in the pre-gig music, I try and edit out gaps between songs so that the songs just flow immediately into each other. Because I always see the the pre-gig music that I choose as a kind of warmer pact. Because in Edinburgh, you're just going straight on. You've only got an hour. It's not like seeing someone on tour where you get two halves and everything, and you can do a bit of passer at the start. I think you've got to come straight out of the traps. So I try to really upbeat music beforehand just to get the audience warm. What I notice is, and the reason why I try and get rid of those gaps is on nights where the one song finishes and another song starts, in that gap, the audience will sometimes stop talking because they feel self-conscious talking through a silence. You hear them sort of chatting away during a song. The song ends, they go quiet, and there's a tension in the room, and then the next song starts, and they start chatting again. And you think there's a tension in the air in this room that is just, you know, basically polite manners, I guess. People don't want to be talking loudly in an enclosed space. On the nights where they just keep talking over the gaps, I think this is going to be great. And I think on the whole... I've called that right most nights. I think, when I think it's going to be a good one, it usually is. However, there are some nights where it starts off slow, but then they come to you about 10 or 15 minutes in. So th- th- I've definitely been wrong about when an audience... That must be the biggest buzz. I mean, that must be warming up a cold <laughs> Oh, must God, be. yeah, but sometimes you kind of... I am quite dopey in understanding the rules of all this stuff. So there are times when it's kind of a total surprise to me where I'll go, oh, I don't know what I've done there, but somehow I've managed to get them. And maybe it's, you know, I've been doing it a long time. So perhaps I have more skills than I'm giving myself credit for. But what I would also say is, yes, is that there are certain jokes where early on, I think, oh, they haven't laughed at that. So they're probably not going to laugh at that, that, and that. I'm still going to do those jokes. But I just think, you know, maybe six years ago, I'd have thought, ah, well, if they don't like that, they're not going to like this. And I might have then not done that bit. But then they're definitely not going to laugh at it if you don't do it. So I think, well, they're probably not going to like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I think that's been the change that I've made. What I would also say is, the show is pretty much the show. I add Liberam bits, but uh, you know, I write it, I record it every night, I listen back to it, I change bits, and you know, work on it like a mechanic would a car. But in the room, obviously, if there is a kind of... Because of the comedy I do, I take the mick out of all political parties and persuasion. So I'll bash the hard left. I'll have some, you know, quite knowing jokes, probably at the Blairite wing. I'll have a go at Scottish independence, at Brexit, at the Remain campaign, at both wings of the Tory party, the Lib Dems, the Greens. You know, everyone kind of gets a uh, going over at some point. So if there is a reaction in the room, which often there is, and in the last few years it was the kind of Corbynite left became very sensitive, Obviously you kind of have to address that and it's fun to address it. So then I kind of, you know, think about that a little bit. So yes, I think you have to be reactive if there's stuff happening. Although in Edinburgh I did have quite a few walkouts the last two summers when it would get to the Corbyn section, people would have to physically leave the room, they couldn't bear it. Usually people who look like him. It was kind of guys with beards. <laughs> I remember one guy saying, I can't listen to this.
0: There's a wonderful bit in your book where you say that if you go to a Labour Party meeting, you might think that the kind of real radicals are going to be young... Dynamic, you know, but actually, the really radical, difficult people are old blokes with.
1: Oh, it's always the ones who look the most genteel.
0: And ba- badges, badges is the other thing. Badges is a bit of a giveaway. Yeah. Yeah,
1: oh God, right yeah, badges, badges is a real
0: giveaway. I hadn't been to my local branch for a long time, and I went along when the Corbyn stuff started happening because I just kind of I oh got I ought to try and do something. And there was a bloke and he had about thirty badges on, and I thought, oh my God, I can't go back to badge. <laughs> I, can, I cannot go back to Badge Land. I thought. Now, onto your politics. So, part of your brand is you're going to be nice and civilized, even though the world's falling apart. And you are going to treat with respect people who you disagree with passionately. I was just listening again to your episode with Swella Braverman, for example. Now, I like that because I'm a centrist, you know, and also I'm middle class and, you know, politics is containable for me. I don't feel that my life is being fundamentally screwed up, even though in many ways I think the country is. Is there a danger, and you must get this from people, that it's a rather kind of bourgeois attitude to say, well, even though we kind of disagree with each other and even though our opponents might do some pretty
1: ruthless things and might be messing up the country, isn't it good that we can all be nice to each other? I don't think it's bourgeois at all. I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a product of my upbringing, particularly my mother. And, you know... I know you're not bourgeois, yeah. but I mean, I think the, what I suppose I'm saying is, actually, one of the things you've tacked in the book is complacency.
0: In the fact that you're willing to have on people who you deep down think are messing up the country and be nice to them, and in some ways humanise them, is that something which we can do? Because in the end, we we don't really suffer in the same way as people who do suffer from political mistakes.
1: Well, I think there are two things. One is it's an extension of my personality. I just have always enjoyed talking to people about politics and have always slightly enjoyed more talking to people that I disagree with. And I think even with Brexit, that I really disagree with, to sort of just damn everyone who agrees with it and to say, well, you're screwing up the country, therefore I can't engage with you. I just think it causes more problems. I think that there is a risk, obviously, you know, but there's a risk to every kind of approach you take. So the risk to the combative interview is that the audience doesn't appreciate that politicians are human beings operating in difficult circumstances, trying to do their best. They think, well, they're all idiots and they're all acting with some sort of malign intent, and therefore I don't respect them. That allows populism to rise because you're not able to spot the politicians that are doing good or that are operating from a good place. Of course, the risk of having a show where you are reasonable with people is that people might come away and think, well, actually, I don't mind that person. But I think most people, whether they listen to the podcast or not, of course, most people don't listen to it, are capable of saying, I've heard that person. I quite liked them. I'd go for a pint with them. I completely disagree with them on Brexit, independence, you know, Corbynism, Blairism, whatever. I don't think there's ever really a downside to showing people as they really are.
0: Well, you see, that's interesting because you say in the book that you never managed to persuade Jeremy Corbyn to come on, but you would have liked to. Now, the thing about Jeremy Corbyn is that I think his incompetence and his pandering, the kind of pandering to the hard left, is so problematic, it's not useful to say, but he's a nice man. But yet a big part of the whole Corbyn thing was... Amongst people who said, forget the anti-Semitism, forget this, forget that, forget what people around him do. He himself, you know, he's a nice man. So when you invite him on the podcast, do you not think, well, you'll be confirming that kind of idea, that in a sense, the best way of understanding Jeremy Corbyn is, well, he's a nice bloke. Because I'm not sure what is a useful way of understanding him. I think maybe he has to be understood in terms of what doesn't really
1: matter what kind of bloke he is. The fact is he messed everything up and did some terrible stuff. I mean, I completely agree. I never bought into the idea that he was a nice bloke or that that was an appropriate defence of him. And uh, given that we share the same politics, and to be very clear, having read the book, what I think about him and, and the people he hung around with and the excuses he made for some of the things he'd said and done himself were terrible. I cannot believe that he's a particularly nice person. But You'll make him, because of the person you are, Matt, because of the way you talk to people, if he comes
0: on your podcast... People who listen to it will end up feeling better about Jeremy Corbyn than they did
1: at the beginning. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, the aim of the podcast isn't to show the guests in a positive light, it's to show them in an honest light. And I interview them in a particular way, in a natural way, just the way that I would talk to people. And that gets people to be themselves. I still ask them difficult questions. Yeah, And guests still give, sometimes, I would say quite regularly, some pretty poor answers. And it's not for me to immediately leap on that in the way that, say, Andrew Neil or Nick Robinson would but I gently reveal. And although the questions may be asked in a way that is informal and polite, because that's just the way that I talk to people, the questions are still potent and the answers are highly revealing. And I think sometimes, now obviously what you don't have in that interview is the interview going, ah, well, you've just said, you know, but I give the audience credit that they are capable of listening to that and going, actually, I think that's I think that's a really incompetent answer and for the audience to kind of make up their own minds. But I'm going to have you on, so God knows what people are going to make of that. What if I do the unthinkable and humanise Matthew Taylor?
0: You should absolutely try and muller me, mate. You really should. Now,
1: (laughs) Imagine, imagine if I really set you up.
0: i tell you what, it once happened to me. I used to do Newsnight when I was at IPPR.
1: I remember. That was back when, I could say this (laughs) genuinely hand on heart, The IPPR used to be such a big deal, and it was massive. I remember as a kid thinking, oh, maybe I'd like to work for the IPPR one day. It felt like such a big, serious, cutting-edge organisation when you were there. It was. It was incredibly exciting. And I used to
0: go on Newsnight, and that was when a lot of people used to watch Newsnight. It used to be when, you know, if you were on Newsnight, people would kind of smile at you in recognition on the tube the next day, you know. And once I went on to discuss... Labour's obsession with spin, and my phone rang while I was being interviewed, which was quite funny. People assumed it was Peter Mandelson, but it was actually my au pair. <laughs> she couldn't get the kids to see. Anyway, I used to go on, and Jeremy Paxman would interview me. And because I was the IPPR person and I was just kind of commentating, he, he would be nice to me. And then one day I made mean, this terrible mistake, which is they couldn't, it was Christmas or something, they couldn't get a Labour Party spokesperson. So they ran me up and said, Will you kind of be the Labour Party spokesperson on this issue? And I went, oh, all right then, you know, fair enough, because basically I'll do anything to be on television. And I went on, and I'm sitting next to Jeremy Maxwell. and I go, hi, Jeremy, and I realise he's not going to treat me in the same way. And then he, when he turned on me in the interview to say, well, how can you defend this? I thought, oh, my God, Jeremy, what's <laughs> happened to you? It, it was terrifying. He was a completely... So you can do that to me, Matt. You can invite me on. You can soften me up. We'll tell a few jokes about the Albion. And then you can go for the bloody jugular, mate. Now... I want to talk about the hard left and the soft left, right? So I'm a centrist. I'm, you know, incredibly I'm marshmallow soft on the left. But there's a lot of dynamism in the hard left. And you know, a lot of people who were I you mean, know, are people who work for me who are Tories, but there's quite a lot of people who work in the RSA who are pretty radical, you know, and and I can't just dismiss them. So one of the things that I've become slightly obsessed by in the last year or so is how can you get a better conversation between the kind of centrist pragmatists? Progressives and the more radicals, because that fault line has been a huge problem. As you know, you know the Sanders, Clinton, Corbyn, Blair, or whatever. That fault line has been, you know, a big problem. It's one of the reasons why the populist right has done so well. Is the left has been so divided. And I think what I want to say is that the soft left should talk more about the fact that even though it's pragmatic, in the end, it does want a radically different society. And if we did that, maybe we could persuade the hard left. To say, even though they reject pragmatism and compromise in their politics, actually, in order to survive as human beings, they are actually quite pragmatic, and do make compromises in the rest of their life. I mean, I had Yanis Varoufakis on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and you know, I had a good chat with him. You know, he didn't really compromise, and he's he's a bit more of a libertarian than a kind of Trotskyite. But do you talk to people on the hard left? And do you think I'm right that there is more scope for a bit of dialogue? I mean, I'm not not talking about Corbynism now. I'm not talking about the bearded Trots. I'm talking about, particularly about younger people
1: who are much more radical. Can we improve the conversation? Oh, definitely. Yes. I think there are two separate things. One is about how those things coexist in the Labour Party. I don't think people like Jeremy Corbyn should have ever been really allowed in or allowed to stay. I think they go beyond what the remit of the Labour Party is. Just in general, of course, and I think the way to do it, and I think where you're absolutely right, if you're a young people growing up in Britain today, centre-left politicians haven't been that exciting, and that's a part of it. I mean, also, (laughs) I don't think Jeremy Corbyn's particularly excited, but I guess what he was saying was exciting to some people in some ways. So I can understand how you look around the middle and you go, oh, they all kind of look the same and sound the same. Now, I think that is a cosmetic analysis of politics that we should resist. However, in general, of course, you know, when people are a bit more radical and dynamic, they often are thinking about the world in different ways. And it doesn't mean that you agree with everything they say, but they might lead you in a direction of perhaps a little more creative thought. So I guess you take the conversation away from. You know, rather than putting on an event called you know, the future of Corbynism, you do it around something like climate change, where you're then discussing that in a broader way and everyone can chip in. And then actually you're working towards a sort of specific policy area and, and you're kind of having a, a broader chat. I think as long as it's framed as the future of the Labour Party, you know, people just immediately go in as I've got to defend this position. That's what I'm at this meeting for. And of course, people's political position is, is so personal to them. And not just in the sense that the politics is personal, but like a football club, it is the badge they wear. It's the scarf they wear. it is They fear it's seared into their heart. And if you're attacking Jeremy Corbyn, you are attacking them and you're attacking their grandparents. It's so personal, which is why people get so emotional about it.
0: I completely agree with that. But I've never really quite understood why it is that, that a couple of things that are so obviously true are so difficult to agree about. So one thing that's obviously true is something that Tony Blair said, but I've heard countless politicians say it which is that principle without power is pointless, and power without principle is equally pointless, that you have to have both.
1: So that's so obvious.
0: But yet we forget it all the time. And then another kind of obvious thing, which is the longest journey starts with a single step. Yes. And yet on the left, we forget the insight that we do need power and we do need principle. And we do have to start the journey with a single step, but it would be good if the journey was ultimately trying to
1: take us to somewhere, you know, sunny and high up. Yeah, but th- this is the thing. The first point is some people forget that. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you've ever forgotten that. And I don't think I ever will. But yes, never underestimate a new generation's ability to not learn the lessons of just two or three years ago and to want to repeat this you know, futile exercise in wanting to feel good rather than wanting to govern. And this is part of the problem. This is what the Labour Party really has to come to terms with is it does not exist. It's all these things as well. It is a family and it's a social club and all that sort of thing. But it exists with the express aim of forming a government. That is why it was set up. Everything else really is secondary to that. And you take, of course, as red that it's more left-wing than the Tories. So to have a left-wing alternative to the Conservative Party in government, everything else beyond that, in a way, is a kind of distraction. People come into it because, oh, you know, my dad was in Militant and I'm kind of carrying on his work. People bring so much baggage to the Labour Party. And the Labour Party has been very tolerant of a lot of people that come to it, effectively distracting it. You know, if the Labour Party was a business, you'd say, we need to close these branches down because they're not profitable, you know, in political terms. The Labour Party has been running at a loss for a long time. And it is now financially because of the way it was run for the past few years. So I just think that clarity of purpose is so important. And sadly, that involves letting some people go. You can't compromise with everyone. You certainly can't compromise with people who are fundamentally, sadly, completely unreasonable and exist to be. And this is the thing. you <laughs> What they want, the people like that, when they come to the name, these are people who want to go on protests, who want to wave placards. That is where they get the reward in their life from. As you and I were talking at the start of this interview about laughter, giving you that affirmation. For these people, it is going on protests. That is where they see their role in society, to be vocal, to be on picket lines. And that is the way they've chosen to express it. They're not interested in putting a tie on and and sitting around a cabinet table, compromising on carbon emissions. That's just not where they are. And it's not even politically, it's personally, these people don't want to do that sort of politics. So let them go. I agree with you, but I still think, as well as
0: having me on in 2021, Matt, I think you should get on a couple of the kind of hard-left people because I kind of feel that whilst you're right, one of the great things about comedy is self-recognition. You say something and people go, oh, God, that's true of me, right? And that is a very powerful thing, okay? And when I was interviewing Yanis, you know, he has written this kind of strange... Actually, I encourage you to read it. He's written this kind of strange futurist novel, and it starts off, you think it's going to be unbelievably clunky because there's a set of characters that enunciating political positions and you think, oh my God, this is going to be terrible. But then actually it grows on you and it's a sci-fi book and there's a kind of wormhole that leads to a different society created after the global financial crisis that so is almost perfect socialist society. But in the book, one of the characters and probably the character you can tell Yanis most associates with, in the end, doesn't want to go through the wormhole to the perfect society because she says, I want to carry on protesting. I'm a dissenter." I will never, ever be happy. And I won't be happy. It doesn't matter how perfect a society is. I won't be happy because what I do is protest. And I think that with your skills, Matt, with the need to try and build bridges between the kind of more radical left and the centre left, I think you can encourage people to have a bit more knowingness, a bit more self-recognition. So that's a challenge for you. And I think one of the reasons I think it's important is because passionate centrism isn't easy, is it? I mean, I've just been watching the Trump show documentaries on the BBC. And the thing I underestimated about Trump until I watched that series was he is brilliant at communicating with his core. Oh, yes. Absolutely brilliant at it. Even though I despise everything about him, I watch him and I think, my goodness, if I had any kind of leaning towards him, I could see how people could be devoted to him because of that. He has that rapport. Now, Keir Starmer, he's doing well, but he's not yet managed, has he, to find that kind of passionate centrism yeah, he's a very good opposition leader. He's a million times better than his predecessor, and he's giving Boris Johnson some difficulty. But he's not hes not really hit the passion button yet, has he?
1: He's not caught fire, no. I suppose he hasn't been given the platform to do it by COVID. Often where people will have those moments is at their party conferences where they can really do the big grandstanding speech, and obviously he hasn't been given that platform because of COVID. That said, had he been given the platform, do I think he would have given a hugely rousing speech? I don't know. I think what he does have, and I think it perhaps doesn't come across, is I think he does have that emotional intelligence where he knows how to move people. His does it Discs were very moving in a very kind of Keir Starmer way. So I, I think the ability exists, but obviously <laughs> it's quite a new politician. It takes a while to get good. So it's not that he will never possess that or that he won't learn a a way to, to move people. But yes, at the moment, that's not what he's doing. But maybe that's just because of the situation we're in. I actually don't find it hard to be a passionate centrist. No, that's one of the things that's wonderful about your book. I mean, you know, I
0: appreciate your book in all sorts of ways. But the thing I most appreciated was your passionate centrism. You know, there are a lot of comedians who are very good but they're very radical, and so you know it's easier, I think, to stand outside society as a radical. And as I say, there are several comedians who are extremely good at that. I mean, I'm a great fan of Stuart Lee, and you know, and he's very good at, as as a kind of radical critic of the entire establishment. But you are very funny, you're very passionate, you're very outspoken, but from an absolutely resolutely centrist kind of position, and. And I think there's a bit of genius there, you know, mate. I really do. I think that when it comes to if Keir Starmer is going to demonstrate his passion, I think you
1: should be chatting with him about how he can do it because it's not an easy thing to do. Well, a lot of it just comes down to the individual. Uh, There are centrist politicians who aren't passionate and there are ones that are. I thought Tony Blair was a hugely inspirational, passionate person who made pragmatism really attractive and was able to sell it in a way that was so passionate and so was Gordon Brown, and so was Peter Mandelson, so was Mo Molem. You know, these people really touch people and move them emotionally when they spoke. So it exists. I think in politics, obviously, you don't get everything right. And I think part of the problem with the last few years is the danger that those of us on the, on the Blairite, the Progress Wing, whatever you would call us, can fall into is going, well, we're just self-evidently right. So, you know, you listen to us, you win, and you ignore us, and you lose. That doesn't mean that we get everything right. And that doesn't just mean in policy terms. Some of the politicians that we have served up on our side of the party haven't been good enough, haven't been inspirational enough to move people. And that's important. The individuals do matter. And sometimes I think the left really struggles with that. You saw that around Corbyn, where people say, oh, actually, his lack of charisma is a good thing. It's just a ludicrous thing to say. They understood his personal failings. And uh, obviously, everyone has personal failings, but they understood that he was just nowhere near what people expected in the leader of a party or in a prime minister. So that's something for people on all wings of parties to think about. Recruitment is crucial. And also recruiting beyond. I think the danger with <laughs> the whole Blairite thing is you go, well, if it looks and sounds like, so take David Miliband for an example really talented politician, super, super bright, doesn't have that Blair thing. you know. In so many ways, he's Blair, but in the crucial bit, and same with David Cameron, although a different type of politician, it was all quite cosmetic. People going, well, we just want a kind of photogenic guy around the middle who sounds a bit like Tony Blair. The thing about Tony Blair wasn't any of those things. It was the fact that he was a bit of an eccentric. It was the fact that he was quite funny. He had a really good sense of humour. All the things that actually... But fundamental about him. None of those people that always get called as the Eds Blair had. The only person who I think was the true Ed Blair was Alan Johnson. He was the one who understood that kind of human element of Blairism. And I think for me, that was a huge part of what Blairism is, is that attraction of the individual in politics. You know, that great line of Blair, politics is the art of possible, at least in life, give the impossible a go. You want to sense that people are dreamers a bit. That they want a better world, that it's not all just the day-to-day grudge of politics and inching things towards, you know, some sort of compromise. It is also that there's an overarching belief that life is really good and has the potential to be really good for a lot more people. I think the other thing
0: about Tony was that he had something which is quite unusual on the left, which is he, generally speaking, liked, liked the public. Yes! <laughs> and generally speaking when the public felt something he took it seriously rather than thinking it was just a form of false consciousness now matt we've gone massively over time but that doesn't matter because it's been brilliant i've got three short questions for you first one will you send me a signed copy of your book with a dedication to my son because it's his birthday in a few days i'm asking on air because it's going to be really difficult for you to say no now
1: i will absolutely do that i don't have any copies of it in the flat so um you must
0: know someone who does but then you've got, oh, how are we going to sign it? It's his birthday in a couple of days. Well, you're going to have to figure that out, Matt. Okay, that's good. <laughs> I'm going to have to so, buy it on Amazon and then send it to you. Yeah, well, I suppose I could buy it on Amazon and send it to you, but that's going to slow us down, isn't it? So I don't. you may have to buy your own book on Amazon, put a message to my son Cornell in it, send it to me, and then I'll owe you one, mate. I will owe you. I can't believe
1: I'm going to buy it. What sort of podcast is this? you meant to get your guests a treat hang on hold
0: on it's one copy of the book versus me what bigger endorsement is there than wanting it for my son i mean obviously i'm not actually i'm not actually buying it
1: the but book is 16.99 the postage is going to be similar if i want it to get there in time i'm happy to do it matthew it'd be my good deed for the
0: year you're very kind second question right while sticking with my family very simple question I want to tell you which of these two things is more impressive my father once went out with mo molan before she was a politician so that's impressive fact number one so you know i hung out with mom Olin when she was quite out there to be honest she was a pretty kind of radical lady this before she got into politics or the fact that my father once went out with somebody who had a relationship with laurie cunningham <laughs> oh. Come
1: on, i want you to tell me which of those two things is most impressive you no know actually it's the momolan one because it's well because it's closer isn't it it's your dad Well, you, you, you're contradicting what you said earlier about footballers in the end being the most impressive people of well, all because, well, what I mean for you as an anecdote is it, it's better for you the Laurie Cunningham one feels too removed it's like dad's mate or something your dad went out with Mo, Mo Molan was sort of technically your stepmom for a bit she was well there you go you, I mean you're not going to get much better than I
0: that. do have a photograph I think it's alright to say this now but I do have a photograph of me my old man Mo Molan my girlfriend at the time on a beach smoking what is unmistakably an enormous spliff
1: and you girlfriend at the time was harriet harman
0: (laughs) so okay so we've established which is the most impressive fact and now finally what about you is there any sense in which you would actually like a political career because you know you're very thoughtful you're very bright you've got an incredible kind of communicative capacity could you go on that journey could you do the Glenda jackson give up your international fame in favor of being a day to day politician?
1: It wouldn't be about that for me. I think working, being a politician, I think is such a hard job and it requires a particular set of skills that I don't have. And I think in life you have to kind of accept your limitations. And I think being a member of parliament, being an elected politician, is far more difficult than the public realise. And I don't have the stamina for it, I don't have the patience. I don't really want to stop what I'm doing. I, I'm just having such a wonderful time doing comedy. It's such a freeing, exciting place to live. The, the amount of freedom that I have is remarkable to create things. I don't really want to give that up. So it, it's partly selfish and partly just I know how hard it is to work in politics, and it was the most stressful thing I ever did. And I don't really have a desire to go back. Uh, I get
0: that. All I'd say to you, Matt, is don't underestimate the power of the skills and insights that you've got in terms of some of the things that the progressive movement needs right now sense of humor capacity to reach out a willingness to understand and respect your opponents you know these are very very important skills matt it's been an absolute delight to speak to you and i look forward to appearing on your podcast. Don't make that point. I look forward to appearing on your podcast at some point in 2021. And thanks for the book. Pleasure. And in return, how do I
1: join the RSA and become like a, what's the top thing, like a fellow or something? I I will send you an email later on this morning. Thank you very much. That's
0: it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it and we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.